This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors, the Professor is off today. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, Professor Siegel, the Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer of own investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting deep dive show today. We have a guest who is returned. He happens to be on Penn's campus, and we thought we would check in with him to get an update on what's happening in his market. It's really an interesting conversation that we don't have on Behind the Markets a lot. Brandon Zeck, Director of Acquisitions and Portfolio Management at Sierra's Partners. Brandon, welcome to Wharton. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. Happy to be here. Uh, it's, it's great to have you here on campus. Uh, and we had a you know a show focused entirely on farmland before. Uh, when you were on in the past, we talked with a farmland REIT. We had you on. You know, there's really not a lot of public vehicles. Actually, one of my fellow podcast uh, friends, Meb Faber, did a show with one of the other podcast REITs for the public structures. We had uh, one of the CEOs of, a, of the other farmland REIT on our show with you. Um, but I want to sort of focus on what's been happening in the market. There's been a lot going on. Farming, agriculture is in the news. We're going to get an update on what you think about the macro. Um, but it should also revisit the case for farmland generally and how people should be thinking about it. People from asset allocation, talk, you're talking with universities, endowments, institutional type investors. So we'll talk a little bit about some some from you, how people are using this this asset class. But maybe just for people tuning in for the first time, hearing your story, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get interested in farming? You came from Lehman Brothers. We were at the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis. You came from Lehman to farming. Um, tell that story. Sure. Well, uh, thanks again for having me. Uh, yeah, I actually had a stop at Morgan Stanley for six years in between Lehman and farmland. But um, from the standpoint of being interested in farming, I started up, you know, I grew up on a family farm in northeastern Pennsylvania, a dairy farm and had interest in doing something other than milking cows, which is what led me to Wall Street in the first place. And after being in New York for nine years, uh, I met our founder and chief investment officer, Perry Veith of Cirrus, through a mutual friend at Notre Dame's endowment. And we started talking. And at the end of 2010, I was actually his first hire. He had started the fund to move some of his own personal assets out of paper and into hard assets that generated income. And farmland was really the the asset class that fit that bill in 2007. And uh, so when I joined in 2010, um, I came on and moved to the Midwest and really took the role of uh, running the day-to-day portfolio. So sourcing farm tenants, sourcing land acquisition, doing valuation analysis, and working with Perry to build the portfolio. As we sit here today, almost, well, eight and a half years later, uh, we have about 20 employees. Uh, when I started, we man- we owned 6,000 acres, and now we're at 113,000 acres and manage over $725 million in investor capital. That is some good growth. Yes, yeah, it has been. And uh, we've, been, we've been lucky in the sense that um, I think we have the right model for approaching the market. Uh, within farmland, there are a lot of different ways to skin a cat. Uh, there are you know, U.S., non-U.S., permanent crops, row crops direct operating versus a lease model. And we think we've really found the sweet spot to deliver the best returns with the least amount of risk. So what was Perry's background? So the CIO, the, the founder of your firm, tell a little bit about his story. How did he come to the business? Sure. So he um, you know, was an investment manager. He ran uh, fixed income, currencies, and asset allocation strategies at Panagora Asset Management in Boston uh, and managed a lot of institutional money. And in 2005 and six, was looking to get some of his own personal capital 
out of the paper markets and into real assets. And uh, having been from the Midwest, he spent a lot of time looking at various opportunities, timber, farmland, and really found farmland in the Midwest as a unique opportunity to generate income in a very inefficient market. And I think that's what drew him to the market, moving from fixed income trading where there's a lot of efficiencies to farmland investing where there are just structural inefficiencies across the market that make it really attractive from an investment standpoint. Yeah, so this goes where there's there's this whole active-passive debate that rages in my world, like are you buying index funds, active managers, and here, there's not even broad, there's not a lot of public, I mean, certainly not a lot of public fields you can buy. We've talked about there are only really two REITs, so there's really no passive approach. It all has to be some sort of active management. Maybe talk about just the whole farmland opportunity size that you're looking sure. at. Yeah, that's a great point. So there is an index in farmland, but it's not investable. It's the Encrief, uh, which exists for commercial real estate as well. Um, it, it's more of a tracking index amongst uh, managers who manage money on behalf of pension funds. So that index is out there, but there's no cheap beta in the system. You know, in the past, the only way to gain exposure to farmland was to buy a farm and then try to manage it. And because of the local idiosyncrasies and the difficulty of sourcing land and farmers, it really was not an investable asset class for most people, certainly not a retail investor. Now there are some publicly traded vehicles, uh, two public REITs that are open to retail investment. Um, they've had you know various amounts of success and challenges over the last few years. And then there are private vehicles, which you know they first started 20 years ago. We were still pretty early to the, the party in 2007. And even today, I would say investors that are investing in the space are still relatively early. Um, institutional investment in farmland, if you kind of assume the most, uh, all the funds that we know, people we don't know, um, other investors in the space, and kind of double it, you'd come to maybe 2 or 3% of the entire market is institutionally invested. So because of that, there, there tend not to be a lot of money chasing deals, and most deals are smaller and because of that just more inefficient. So, you know, what you've seen is there are there is more investment or investor interest in the space, but it's still difficult to do. Um, it's not like buying a stock or a bond. You actually have to go out and source the land. And so, so talk about that payoff stream. So you talked about your, your CIO wanting to get out of paper fiat currency, essentially, into something that is more diversifying, has some kind of protection. So, But talk about the return stream you think you get from the farm ownership. Sure. So farmland in general, you know, we kind of think of it as gold with a coupon. So it should be very uh, positively correlated with inflation. So the more we hear about inflation creeping up now and the Fed raising rates and what that will lead to, farmland should be a vehicle that de delivers strong inflation hedged returns. Uh, that comes in a few ways. So um, if you're buying farmland, there's income every year. So if you think of it as gold with a coupon, that coupon is the rent payment or the income stream that comes on an annual basis. And that can range. If you look at the the index that, like I said, is non-investable, I think that averages at about 35 to 3.6% income. We certainly try to do better than that. Um, and in the Midwest, we try to do it in a way that has uh, a lower amount of risk, dealing with the best farms, the best farmers. But um, income is a big portion of your return stream. And that, because it's based on uh, product or productivity on the farm and um, grain prices, that it should be positively correlated with inflation over time. Secondly, there's just a, a beta component to owning land. So to the extent that there is inflation and there are gains in productivity, if you're an active manager or owner of the land, those productivity gains should fall to your bottom line. So if you look at the Chicago Fed, um, that's the 7th District, they have uh, quarterly reports that come out addressing farmland, as does the Kansas City Fed and others. Uh, but Chicago is really more our region of farms. And if you look at their data going back 60 years, they would say that farmland has appreciated on average around 6% a year. And that's really inflation plus gains in productivity. Again, you can't buy that beta cheaply, and it can be more volatile, but that tends to, to ring true with us over time. So do you think that that is the price gains without the annual coupon that you're talking that's about? That's right. That's so just that's appreciation like the... of the land. Um, and then there's a third aspect that 
um, is value add. So an interesting part of all real estate is how can you improve properties? And when you own farmland, uh, in most cases, you just own dirt. So there aren't a lot of depreciable assets, uh, especially on the row crop side. You just own dirt in the ground. It's not going to disappear. It's tough to damage. But there are ways that you can increase the productivity of that land. So it may be adding irrigation to sandy soils that need it or adding drainage capabilities to heavier soils. And in that value add, uh, you can generate higher returns. So we really look at it as a three-pronged approach. Uh, You can't really control the beta, but if you buy the farm right, it gives you a lot of cushion on that side. And doing value add and generating the strongest rents are the best way to generate strong returns. Now, in terms of all sorts of decisions to allocate, you got to get the asset class right. You got to get the timing right. And um, there's some macro things going on in the market. We have Trump tweets. We have tariffs, uh, agriculture, soybeans are prime focus. But uh, maybe you could talk about the broader trends, and then we could go towards uh, what we think the tariffs mean. Sure. So, in general, you know, I view and and we view this as a, a really key time to allocate to farmland. One of the reasons being. We've been at the bottom of our cycle here for three years in terms of commodity markets, and tariffs have you know exacerbated that to before some extent. Before Trump. This was all before Trump. Yeah, this was before Trump. So to give a brief amount of history, in 2012, uh, there was a very short crop year in the U.S., meaning there was a, there was a large drought which reduced production significantly. Uh, the way that global commodity markets are set up for grains, uh, you may think when you read about tariffs and trade that there are four or five years worth of you know piles of grain sitting somewhere that the end users of that grain, and mainly for food stock or feed grains, they have multiple years of supply that they can whittle down. Well, that's not the case. Uh, global stocks to use are around you know, 113, 114%. So you're talking about six weeks worth of grain that's out there. So when you have a short supply year, um, that can really impact price. And that's what we had in 2012. So corn prices on the spot market jumped all the way to 7 and $8 a bushel. Soybean prices were up over $15 a bushel. Those were the most profitable years farmers ever had, especially if they had a crop. So if they had irrigation during the drought, they had windfall profits in those years. And because of that, uh, you saw some demand was destroyed across the world. So Uh, People who were feeding cattle would reduce their stocks. People who were milking cows would reduce their herd. Uh, And it was a way, or they'd substitute uh, higher cost corn for lower cost wheat. And that, you know, in a commodity market, typically high prices solve high prices and low prices solve low prices. So what we saw was demand go down. And following that one drought year, we had bumper crops in almost every region of the world for four consecutive years. And that had really never happened. So because of that, we saw global stocks come up to that 14 15%, and you saw grain prices come down. And as demand had been destroyed and supply went up, corn prices moved down uh, in the 330 to 350 range. Soybean prices were down at 8 and $9, and that's really where they sit today. But that started in 2014 and 15. So we've been at three years of lower grain prices. And what that means is that you know, demand has increased globally. So the fundamentals behind the the use of grains for cattle feed, for ethanol, and other purposes have been increasing over time. And um, if we see a, a short crop year coming up, that could really, really move things. So we think um, from a, the standpoint of where we are in the commodity cycle, it's beneficial to be allocating the farmland. Where we are in the inflation cycle, Again, in farmland should be positively correlated with inflation. So any uptick we see there should be a benefit. And the one thing that if you look at farmland returns over time for the broader farmland market, it has been typical equity-like returns but with more bond-like volatility. And over the last few years, we've seen equity markets really moving in a strong direction, and farmland has been averaging kind of flat to just up based on the income side. But we view that as any value investor or um, contrarian investor should look at this as the opportunity to allocate if the fundamentals and it prove to be true and, and if you identify the right manager to work with. 
Uh, so we're talking with Brandon Zick of Sarah's Partners. He oversees private portfolio investments into farmland asset class, but there's not a lot of available options for the general population, not a lot of retail options. So maybe talk a little bit, Brandon, you talked at the high level. Um, well, we didn't get into the, the, the tariff situation. So that in terms sure. of the current dynamics, we, we could all be value investors, contrarian investors, and seeing how you know these you had big bumper years and now prices are down for the last four years. What about the current dynamics in terms of Yeah, it, we'd be remiss to not talk about tariffs. And uh, you know, I can preempt all of it by saying if I knew uh, what was going to happen, I – you know, I wouldn't be talking about it here, I guess. It's tough to gauge exactly uh, what will happen in the near term. But over the long term, the U.S. agriculture market is export-driven. So uh, a large amount of our crop every year, corn, soybeans, is used outside of the U.S. borders. And part of the reason for that is the U.S. has prime soils, great water resources, fantastic transportation and distribution. So we can get our crop out of the field and in the hands of an end user, whether it's in Europe China, elsewhere, as quickly as anybody and for the lowest cost possible. Uh, so any disruption to global trade is not good for agriculture and gen- agricultural producers in general anywhere in the globe. But what you'll find is that it just increases friction and transaction costs. So while um, U.S. soybeans, uh, a large significant portion of them would find a home in China on an annual basis, This year, because of the tariffs and because of some arbitrage opportunities with beans from Brazil, what we've seen is beans that would typically be used for Brazil's domestic use were being exported to China for a nice premium, and those Brazilian domestic industries were actually importing U.S. soybeans to meet their own needs. So the people who make money on that are the folks that are doing those transactions and the middlemen in between. It lowers the cost for U.S. farm producers or lowers the value of the crop, and it increases the cost to a Chinese consumer. We don't think over the long term that that's sustainable. Uh, And from the standpoint of the timing of when the tariffs were announced, in the middle of May, in the U.S., we don't have a crop to sell generally. And most farmers who pursue any type of hedging strategy would have pre-sold or hedged out a good portion of their portfolio of expected production, so maybe between 30 and 50%. So the farmers today, while the price on the board is much lower than what it was in the spring, that's not going to be for every bushel they produce. A lot of farmers, and I, you know, everyone, every farmer is different, but most of the farmers we work with or speak with, uh, they they did do a significant amount of amount of hedging, but they don't like to see at harvest lower prices. Uh, most of our tenants would be storing the grain in grain bins and marketing throughout the spring. So I think it will impact them more if it lasts through through kind of February, March, when they would like to be delivering. So as an investor, how do you navigate in this uncertain times? So you have another, we don't know how long until we negotiate. I think you and I are both in the camp that they're eventually going to come to some sort of deal. We just don't know what that deal will look like, but it could go a lot worse than we expect. I mean, what? how do you navigate investing in this in this environment? Yeah, so from our standpoint, It seems as though when the tariffs were announced, there was an immediate, within the first week, a huge cut in soybean prices, corn prices followed, and uh, that has really persisted throughout this time since mid-May. So from our standpoint, and and I will mention this is on the back of uh, really strong yield estimates in the U.S. as well. So we have a good crop that's growing in the field. But the way we look at it, most of the bad news seems to be priced into grain prices currently. So the way that we underwrite farm purchase is really based on, I mean, we're looking at current yield on the farm. What can that produce today? So while we may believe the long-term price for corn is $4 plus, today it's at $3.55 or $3.60. And so if we're underwriting a farm purchase, it's based on today's grain prices. And that's different than if we looked back in 2012 when grain prices were really high, we weren't underwriting to this phenomenal record price. We were still using that same long-term view of grain prices, corn or beans. So I think that's an important, certainly an important way to look at it. Um, From the standpoint of row crops, too, you have crop optionality. So a soybean farm this year doesn't mean it's soybeans forever. Typically, farmers rotate, and they're profit maximizing. So while they'll follow a rotation, 
in certain years where the price of corn or the price of soybeans indicates higher profits, they're going to grow a higher percentage of that crop. And where we are in the Midwest, because we have so much irrigation, we also grow a lot of specialty crops. So while any investment in farmland, in row crop farmland, should probably be underwritten by where are the prices of grains today, you can still generate higher income by growing higher revenue crops. So on our farms, we grow tomatoes, potatoes, celery, carrots, mint, you know, all seed corn, popcorn, all kinds of crops that generate more revenue than just your typical corn or soybean. So, uh, I mean, what's the strategy? I mean, you talked about the institutional market only owns 2% of all the farms in the U.S. So you, talking about your growth from when you started about a decade ago, you've sort of 20 times your, your acreage. You're going to 20 times again for sitting back here in 2028. And, uh, I hope wh- you're right about that. What yeah. is, the, what is the, the acquisition plan? How do you go out there and, and, and what are the types of diversifiers for the, the, the piece of property you own? Sure. So, you know, we're based in the Midwest. So we're in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, and that really means that we're pretty close to a lot of the investments we make. We're Right now, our footprint is 10 states. We're heavily focused on the Midwest. Uh, while it's the most mature farm market in terms of competitive farmers, transportation, and end users, it, it really is, in our, in our view, one of the most inefficient markets. So as institutional ownership increases across the farmland spectrum, that maybe 10 years from now, institutions own 8%. Um, There's always going to be a limit on how much they can own in a hurry because there's only about 1% of farmland in the U.S. that turns over every year. Because if you look at who owns farmland, well, owner-operators are 40% or maybe 50% of the farmland market, and institutions are 2 to 3%. The rest of farmland, and this goes for ranches and old plantations and just row crop farms, Uh, It tends to be owned by non-farming heirs. So that could be widows, estates, trusts, people that two or three generations previously, whether it was their grandparents or great-grandparents, they were farmers. But people have moved off the farm, but the family still owns that land. And it tends to trade not opportunistically, but more in terms of settling an estate or generating liquidity for the family. So I think while institutions are going to continue to grow in the space – you know, 1% is still a huge amount of land that turns over every year in the U.S. So there's going to be plenty of opportunity for people to invest, but it's not going to look like the timber market that has a huge institutional ownership relatively quickly. Um, So it's exciting from that standpoint that we think we can continue to grow within our footprint without a lot of institutional competition. To date, we really haven't seen a lot. We know some of the other managers Uh, that have been out there, the public REITs, the private funds, we tend to see them at conferences more than we ever would um, bidding against each other for a farm transaction. And that's what investors should look for. They should want this inefficient market where we tend to be partnering with a local farmer and bidding against usually other farmers to buy the land. And, you know, that's really how we source a lot of our farms. You know, our model is not buy a property, and then figure out who's going to farm it. We work with right now 80 farmers across our portfolio that they rent all the land from us. And they're on multi-year leases. They really treat the ground like they own it. Uh, They're great partners uh, in the short term and over the long term. Some of these farmers we've been working with for 11 years now, and they actually source a lot of land privately. So there are public auctions uh, but there's no ability to go on to Bloomberg now and push Indiana Farmland Go and see what's the price of an acre in Indiana. And uh, I Second hope- idea for the Bloomberg people listening in. It <laughs> sounds like Brandon has a new tool for you that he would like to develop. Uh- <laughs> yeah, actually, if that's the case, it would become a lot more competitive a lot quickly. So I think from our standpoint, we prefer the inefficiency. The The interesting thing about our strategy is that there's no financial alchemy. I mean, we're we're buying land. We're renting it on a long-term lease with farmers, and it's just a blocking and tackling strategy, which I think anytime someone has to explain to me in five or ten slides what they're doing, it's difficult to see how that makes sense. But from the standpoint of just paying less for a farm by trying to buy it privately versus in the open market, uh, that that is still a pretty scalable proposition in farmland. 
And and so, Brandon, we were talking about how the value add of Cirrus. You talk a lot about you use the word inefficiencies in the market a little bit, and and I would associate that in the public equity markets. Well, inefficiency means there's value opportunities. Things are selling cheaper than they ought to be. Maybe talk a little bit about multiples when you're buying a piece of property. And talk about how it's valued. So what are the types of multiples you're paying and what are even the, the cash flow multiples that, that you're looking at? Yeah, so it's an interesting dynamic because there are two, um, you know, typically when a farm sells, uh, there are usually two types of buyers. Overwhelmingly, it's an active farmer who's buying a, land, a piece of property that they think is a strategic addition to their, their farming operation. So when we see a farm for sale, typically we're bidding against neighboring farmers. Uh, and then there are also institutions that are out there. Um, the interesting thing from the standpoint of a farmer buying a farm is it's tough to actually see, well, what multiple are they using because they're the operator. So they're taking what we would consider the landowner return and also the operator's return and potentially compressing that to come up with a different multiple. Uh, from our standpoint, if we're looking at buying a farm, we really want to see a minimum 5% annual cash flow on that property from just the farming operation itself. So that would be, in, in our terms, it would be rent is what we're looking for. That's kind of our buy signal. And then to the extent that we want to make CapEx improvements on a farm, we typically try to target a 10% cash-on-cash return for something like that. It, like I mentioned earlier, if you look at the institutional index that's out there that's not investable, they seem to be kind of in that 35 to maybe 4% uh, land return is what they're targeting. So we can t- consider ourselves value buyers because we're just targeting a higher return on all the properties we own. In, farm, in let's say, fixed income or equity markets, when you talk about inefficiencies, there are managers that are chasing after basis points. You know, when we look at farms, we're talking, you know, a 5% versus a 4%. Four percent—that's a hundred basis point swing just on the income of the You're farm. You're paying a twenty percent different multiple on that. That's right, and that—and that's typically what we're targeting. Um, there, you know, a lot of investors in this space are private, so it's tough to know what they're doing. But from our observation in the market, if we go to a public auction, we're only buying one out of every ten or one every twelve properties. On the private side, we'll usually look at five or six properties before we buy one. So last year we invested. Um, you know, around $80 million in in new money in the properties. Uh, but we looked at almost a billion dollars worth of farm deals. And this year we've invested $60 million year to date, and we've looked at almost a billion dollars worth of farm deals for that 60. And we have what I would consider a robust pipeline of opportunity, both on the public auction side and private side, that as we you know, as we add new capital to our, our fund, we'll continue to execute on that strategy. But I think from the – if you just look at what are investors looking for, at least in the Midwest, it tends to be a, a lower return because it should be lower risk than in other portions of the U.S. So if you're in the southeast where you have you know more risks associated with, well, certainly weather, and we're seeing that now with hurricanes in the southeast and how that – not even just the wind, but the water impacts the ability to harvest a crop that's already grown. Um, so there'll be a lot of farm crop that disappears this year through the hurricane. And also when you're in other regions, there's more pressure from pests, meaning weeds and bugs and things like that. It just costs more to grow a crop. So we consider that Midwest being the core part of any portfolio. And as people look to other regions, whether it's the southeast, out west, where there are many more restrictions and regulations around water, and then also into permanent crops, which have a totally different return profile. And we view the Midwest as that core, and everything else, as you build a portfolio, should really needs to be core plus to add mm. that to your holdings. Interesting parallels to the fixed income market, where you have a core, and then you sort of satellite with it. Maybe sort of talk about that um, permanent versus row crop, as you were just alluding to, the difference between between the two and why the the core is the the row crop. Yeah. So um, if you think about farmland in general, um, crop optionality is a, is a great thing. So if a farmer can choose year to year what to grow to maximize profits, options have value. And to the extent when you're growing row crops, you know it does provide you with some of that optionality. If you're doing permanent crops, and you know we can start from the basics. Row crops are crops you're planting annually 
typically they are planted in rows by corn planters or soybean planters or something else. And it can include things like tomatoes and potatoes. So high revenue crops, but it's an annual planting uh, versus permanent crops. So they tend to be the biggest crops in that bucket would be vineyards, orchards, you know, apple orchards, peaches, nuts are a big one now, especially in the Central Valley of California. You know, walnuts, almonds and pistachios, pecans, both in California and the southeast. When you plant one of those crops, you're making a 30-year decision, not just on that crop, but on that variety. So um, if you're planting apples and you decide to plant Honeycrisp, well, that's a three- or four-year turnaround before that plant actually starts producing. And then there's a certainly a, a long time frame where you can continue to harvest that and you're susceptible to variances in yield, but also if people's tastes change. So it wasn't that long ago that Red Delicious was the apple that everyone wanted. It was in every school lunch or available. And now I can't tell you the last time I ate a Red Delicious apple. But Those if, crisp ones are definitely my favorite. Yeah, I think most – and that's why you pay a big premium for them at the supermarket. But um, if you want to switch varieties, that's a very expensive thing to do. So in permanent crops, you have much more of a J-curve. So you have a big investment up front, and then over time, as yields uh, increase, you can start recouping some of that money. Uh, But in row crop farmland, when we buy a farm, before we buy that property, we know uh, who the tenant is. We, We know which farmer in our portfolio we're going to work with, what rent they're going to pay. If there's an improvement project that we want to do on the farm, we try to do that relatively quickly so that we really tend not to experience that type of J-curve because it's a crop that can be turned around in one year. Uh, so that's a, an interesting dynamic. And permanent crops also, if you look at the institutional investment, the percentage of institution, or the percentage of permanent crops that are owned by institutions is a higher percentage than row crops. Uh, that can be for a few reasons. Some of it is simply vertical integration. So uh, the wonderful group they own, you know, halo oranges, wonderful pistachios, almonds. They're a huge vertically integrated mm. distributor that they own the land, they own the farming operation, and they sell to retail. Not everyone can do that, so there are a lot of institutions that have invested in whether it's nuts or vineyards or apples, cherries, everything else uh, that they're selling into that. And it's just a different return profile, certainly riskier. The return on an annual cash flow basis, once it's producing, should be higher than what we do in row crops. But again, you have some of these other risks that come along. And I think there, too, if you look at permanent crops versus row crops, permanent crops can be a huge bucket. So citrus would be in that bucket. But if you own citrus over the last few years, there would be some real issues um, that you know can become problematic and if you own the whole bucket which is very difficult to do you should outperform row crops but most investors don't have 250 or 500 million to allocate to farmland to come up with that diversified bucket they're typically you know our investors range from you know larger investors of 100 million to um, you know, retail investors or, you know, $250,000 investments. Mm. So we have a commingled vehicle that certainly allows for a lot of different investors to come in and get diversification right away. But to date, at least, we've been overwhelmingly 99% row crops because we like that risk return profile better. Interesting. So it gets into, you were talking about the, the the vehicle that's sort of a private fund, and I want to contrast a little bit. One of the, the reasons, you know, you were on not so long ago, but I thought it was an interesting time because right after you came, not sort of right after you came on, but relatively recently, there's been more volatility in the public vehicles. Um, so there's sort of difference between the private market where you don't see the mark-to-market all the time and you don't have the same liquidity profile as you would with the public vehicle. But then ebbs and flows, something happens, there's sort of more involved in the public industry. Maybe talk the, the, the pros and cons, what you think of, without you know calling out specific uh, REITs, but uh, talk about what do you think is happening in the public markets. Sure. Um, you know, there are really, if you think of what are the investment objectives when someone's investing in farmland, there are a couple things they look for. You know, the first is certainly income generation. Um, you, you definitely want inflation protection. 
And then you also like low volatility. I mean, it's a farm. It's not going anywhere. The economics of that farm should not change materially in any one day. So the underlying asset is low vol. So the vehicle should be low vol. And then I think most investors that we talk to, they view our strategy or farmland as a diversifier in their portfolio away from equity markets and fixed income markets. Uh, but if you introduce, so in a public REIT setting, for instance, you can still generate some of the same investment objectives. So there should be income. Uh, there should be a positive correlation with inflation. So you have some protection there. But if you equitize any investment um, and you allow it to be traded like an equity, it will be traded like an equity and it'll have that type of volatility. So most of our investors, when we talk to them and we talk about the pluses and minuses of of a REIT structure versus a public REIT structure versus a private structure, they tend to have a lot less interest in that day-to-day mark-to-market. Certainly it does provide liquidity, so that's you know a plus from their standpoint. They have daily liquidity. But the lack of diversification from equity markets and you know introducing higher volatility is problematic for them. So I think that's the big And the REIT difference. CEOs could use that public thing as liquidity to buy up other farms. And when a rising market, they do well with that. Now, there's been volatility in some of these public REITs. So now, are they in a downward spiral that you would be worried about as an investor in, in the general public markets? So it, it is certainly true that for all REITs, their shares become a currency for a future acquisition. And, you know, most, you know, the REIT structure is built upon growth. And you'd, you'd like to see continued growth. Uh, so to the extent that that currency is appreciating, that gives you more buying power. And, you know, it's a strong tool for delivering that growth to investors. To the extent that uh, your share prices are down, then that becomes less of a currency, especially if you think your share price is undervalued. Um, which, you know, certainly some of the REIT CEOs have, you know, really focused on the undervaluing of their portfolio, that currency is less available. Uh, And I think that will be a challenge. I'm certainly not an equity analyst that follows the REITs closely, but at least in the farmland market, I know one of the strengths that we have in acquiring farms is when we're talking to a, a seller, we're offering them cash or, or cash terms. So they know, and most of the sellers like I said, only 1% of farms are turning over a year. It's typically not institutional investors that are pricing out some arbitrage between gaining more shares of an undervalued stock and how they can hedge that out over time. These are widows, estates, trusts, groups of non-farming heirs. That they have want a local the cash. Attorney. They don't want the shares. Yeah, they want, they want to know what they're getting for their farm. And if we agree upon a price, that's what they want in 60 days when we close. And I think that's been a big tool for us, especially on the private transaction side. When we're negotiating with a seller, we're not asking for seller financing. It's not contingent on a mortgage. It's We tend to want to close for cash. And they know, you know, subject to due diligence, which certainly things like title defects and deeds. And I mean, we own real estate, so you have to do that hard work of, getting through a transaction and making sure what you're buying is what you thought was there. And it is land. It's easy to look at. You know what's there. You get a survey. But I think the sellers, they really like knowing exactly what they're buying. And and maybe over time, as institutional ownership becomes a lot larger, there will be you know, more opportunity for REITs to use their shares as currency in buying land. But I think for the most part, at least most of the transactions we look at, that would not be an advantage for us at this point. Being Having cash and being able to move relatively quickly is the advantage. We're, we're talking with Brandon Zick of Sarah's Partners. He oversees the, the land acquisition, merge acquisitions, running the portfolios for Cirrus. And it's sort of a really interesting aspect. I, I think a lot about you know where we are in the current market cycle. And like you said, everybody's starting to worry about inflation picking up. They're looking for alternatives. They're looking for diversifiers. Brent, I wonder if you think about how people should fit this in in a portfolio when you talk to these institutions. Is it just this sort of quote-unquote alts bucket that they're filling out? Is it the real estate bucket? Because you're talking about your relationship with your farmers is a lease agreement. So is it more real estate? Is it more alts? What is it? Well, it's all of the above, and I, I guess it can be pick one. What's the, yeah? What's the eye of the beholder? So we have uh, institutions we've worked with, uh, family investment offices that view us as a portion of a real asset bucket 
which would include natural resources like oil and gas, mining and metals, timber, uh, commercial real estate, and then farmland being an allocation. Uh, we see pension funds now with um, an allocation of maybe 3 to 5% into real assets or into farmland that would meet that objective. We have other institutions that look at farmland, at least over the last three or four years, as a fixed income alternative or a fixed income substitute. So if you think of uh, income returns in that 4 to 5% level, you know, if they're inflation hedged the way that we believe they should be, that's a pretty good returning tips type Right, product. no, the tips, 10-year tips is not even 1%. Yeah, so it, so there are – it's tough to take farmland and jam it into a bucket because I think that's part of the reason why there hasn't been that much institutional ownership is where do you put it? Because there are um, certain kind of long-term trends that have been true in farmland, but it is like any other real estate. If you overpay for a property, those long-term trends will be overwhelmed by a poor investment decision. So – we really focus on, with our investors, if they understand there is a place for it in their portfolio and they can decide which bucket it goes in, You know, our offer of proof to them is that we're going to continue to do the good job that we do on the acquisition side, on maximizing rent and return over time, and not just from the farm itself in terms of farm rent. The interesting thing about owning land is that all the other options that are available on a farm come with it. And you may say, well, what are those options? What are you talking about? Well, there's a there are a lot of different things. So we generate income on the farms. And I think a lot of people do this too, but we have a real emphasis on continuing to manage the farm actively uh, throughout the ownership period. So we're not looking to buy it and then transfer the ownership or the, the management over to some third-party manager. So all of the, the guys on my team or the folks on my team that I work with and we all have a similar background. We grew up on family farms. We worked in finance or accounting or trading for a number of years. So they understand what it means to be a fiduciary. But they can actually go out and talk to the farmers and really have some credibility with our farm tenant operators. And, you know, that goes a long way over time. We're at the point now that, you know, a lot of those farm tenants are sourcing deals for us. And it becomes kind of a, a really, really scalable growth strategy. Hmm. So it, it, what struck me also in your comments on thinking about it as an inflation hedge and thinking about it versus real estate and then commentary on the public structures and the REITs who also own portfolios of real estate and then trade with higher volatility is as this alternative to the real estate bucket. I mean, could people have meaningful allocations to real estate in portfolios? And this is just another form of real estate, but just not with, not with as many public vehicles, just that's right. They have to come through firms like yours, private vehicles, if they want some of the high institutional caliber. Yeah, and I think you know we describe it as there will be an institutional roll up that starts to happen, and we actually think we're doing it. So we're the we're out there buying properties that in a given year, if we buy seventy five to one hundred and fifty million worth of properties, well, we're you know bringing those farms all up to top producing capacity. We're making the capex investment. We're putting it on an attractive lease with a great farmer for a three to five year period. So we're doing that roll-up. So as more institutions want to come into this space, I don't know how many of them are willing to do the hard work that we do on a deal-by-deal basis. So if we're going to do 40 or 50 transactions in a year, some of them may be $20 million transactions, but a lot of them are a couple million dollars. A lot of them are bolt-ons to existing properties. So adding this property at a, a higher return or a lower price increases the overall yield of the previous holdings. And that's a strategy we've employed for a, a long time. And I think the more that we can do in addition to the the farm rent, so some of those other options I talked about, you know, one thing we do a lot of now is uh, we generate a lot of income from things like wind turbines, um, cell phone towers, billboards, uh, harvesting timber kind of on a, a managed basis, hunting revenue. And then a big one now is generating income from solar. And you would think we're based in the Midwest. Why would anyone put solar panels? Well, there, I mean, there's certainly enough sunlight to justify it, but there's also demand from end users. So as we think about what are the highest and best uses of these properties over time, we explore all options. Um, we have farms that we've sold for things like wetlands mitigation, where it was worth more 
to the fund doing the mitigation than it was to us as a farm. We have farms that are under development options right now. So some of that commercial development you're talking about, whether it's residential, industrial, manufacturing, distribution, um, the amount of farmland every year in the U.S. is going down, and it's going down because of development. So if we buy a farm that we pay a farm price for that's on the outskirts of a town or close to an interstate, uh, a lot of times those developers, they try to have a relationship with us because we own farms in 10 states. So if they have a mandate for a project somewhere, they can talk to us and they know if they're willing to pay an above farm price or a development price that we're likely to transact and then reinvest that money more to farm return. You, you brought up a, a word that got me thinking on something. So you talked about wind turbines being one of the things you can do, but also there's this sustainable environment, ESG type investing all around. We're here on university. A lot of it comes from universities. Um, do you... But you know, also when you talked about the types of crops that are sort of taste change, and I'd say my own personal household, I may have mentioned this in the first show, we are a big nut family. We drink a lot of almond milk. We have a pistachios. The kids love the walnuts. They love everything. But you were telling me a stat on how much water it takes to grow that almonds. It has me actually thinking about all this almond milk I drink every day. So tell me, tell, <laughs> yeah. this, tell the listeners the stat and what do you think about the actual environmental impact on some of these crops? Sure. Well, one thing I can say is there's a lot of anecdotes out there. So, you know, you need to parse through and really determine what you want to believe. And True news and what, fake news here. Yeah, Are we I getting fake so. news at the moment? Or, or I only speak the truth. So okay. um, when you think about it, you know, all agriculture is really dependent on a few things. Uh, and they're all natural resources. So soil, water, sunlight. Those are things that every agricultural product needs. And to the extent that you know, we're really focused on the eastern part of the Corn Belt and the southeast part of the U.S. So these are places, well, right now the southeast are getting a lot more rain than you want, but these are places with a lot of annual rainfall. And specifically in the Midwest, which is our kind of bread and butter, or our focus, there's rainfall during the growing season. So if a crop needs water and if it rains naturally, that is a cheap form of irrigation. It's free. Uh, the rain just falls. And if it came in a timely manner every year, uh, throughout the year, you know, that's fantastic. When people add things like irrigation, you know, we add it to our farms more as a supplemental. So to the extent that um, it hasn't rained, and in the Midwest we have a, about a 10-day drought going right now, that some of the soybeans could use a drink of water. So you'll see today irrigation pivots running in Indiana and Illinois and Michigan and Ohio. And because of that, um, you know, that'll help increase yield. But there are other regions uh, of the country that you can't grow a crop without irrigation. So certainly um, in parts of the Central Valley and parts of Texas and other parts of the Western Corn Belt, and as you move out west, a lot of the climates are desert, so you need irrigation. So the stat I mentioned to you is that um, you know it takes about a gallon of water to produce every single almond. One almond. Eat. Yeah, one yeah. single almond, not a tree, not a bushel, not a pound, one single almond. And that's... You know, again, anecdotal, but that comes from when you plant that almond tree, you've got to water it for a number of years before it starts producing. So in year 7 and 8, it'll start producing, and by year 10 through 20, it'll produce a lot of almonds. But because they're grown in places like the Central Valley of California, that in the summer it tends not to rain that much. And you know, you're drilling 1,000-foot deep wells to pump water, or you're paying a high price for a water allocation from some of the canal systems in California, that's a different value proposition than in the Midwest where it rains naturally or you have recharging aquifers that you're yeah. irrigating out of. Now, as part of this ESG crowd, there's always been these water investments, and you always hear that we're running out of water everywhere. Um, China's really running out of water, supposedly. Do you, Are you at the cutting edge of water technology? Is there going to be like desalination solution. I don't even know what the latest technology is on the latest water solutions. What What's the story there? Yeah, I think water, um, well, like any other resource, it all fi it usually finds itself to the highest or finds its way to the highest and best use. And it seems like for water, the highest and best used is human consumption. And, you know, after that would be industrial. But if you if you look at what's the majority of water being used for, it's agriculture across the world. And so, you know, I think tastes will change over time to the 
you know, along the lines of people are going to be more conscious about how much water is being used to grow, you know, their crop or their whatever they're using at, you know, at the end, whether it's produce, um, fruits, vegetables, even things like cattle. So beef, if you start thinking about turning grain into meat, it takes about seven pounds of grain to make one pound of beef. It takes about four pounds of grain to make one pound of pork, two to three pounds of grain to make one pound of chicken. So, you know, as you start comparing what's the intensity of resource use for everything, you know, there's always going to be an argument, but I do think the most efficient use of resources is the way to go. So when we add irrigation to farms, again, they tend to be in places that have recharging aquifers or plentiful surface water. You know, we're not looking to convert a desert into an irrigated farm. There are people doing it. It's just not something that's part of our DNA. We like to buy farms that are farms and make improvements that generate higher returns over time on those properties. But the the strategy really isn't turning something that's not a farm into one. And in the U.S., a lot of that's already been done. Um, so I think, you know, from that standpoint, whether it's on the same farms we have, harvesting wind, harvesting uh, the sunlight, and using uh, irrigation efficiently uh, just as a supplemental, that's, you know, a big part of what we do. We're in our final two to three minutes on the program. Um, is there anything in terms of people looking at investing in the space, people who think they need diversifiers to their portfolio in constructing things, How any topics that you think you know, would, would, would provide greater insight on what you do? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously there are a couple different ways to approach this space. Um, Like I said, the easiest way to do it in the past, and it was very difficult, but the only way to do it was just to buy a farm. So I would encourage anyone who's interested in agriculture, there are a lot of ways to play it. You can certainly buy publicly listed securities that have an agricultural focus. Um, You can buy a farm on your own. I would encourage everyone, like, like in any market, I believe you make it on the buy side. So identifying the right managers to work with, the people who have existing relationships in regions that tend to be very local uh, in nature, so a lot of local knowledge. So we try to say that we're, you know, very narrow and very deep in terms of what we know. So while you can invest anywhere in the world, so there are a few different buckets you can look at. It's, you know, U.S. versus non-U.S., Within the U.S., we mentioned permanent crops versus row crops. Um, We don't like a lot of currency risk. We don't like sovereign risk. So we love the U.S. because it has a court of law. It has a title system and a deed system that in other regions of the world, you have to wonder how do you underwrite those types of risks. So like I said, our strategy is very simple. I think a blocking and tackling strategy of just paying less for a farm, finding the best farmer you can to generate the highest rent and return is kind of the key to this market. And I think the inefficiencies are going to persist for a while, uh, but it's a matter of just because the market's inefficient, you may be at the wrong end of that. So being an investor in the space still requires you know, doing your diligence on the manager, whether it's a publicly traded read, a, a private fund like ours or others, um, it's really understanding what's the value add that they bring to the table and how can they take advantage of this inefficient market. We think we can do it by being on the ground and being really active, but you know we leave that up to investors to decide. That's a, a great closing thought. We've been talking with Brandon Zick of Sarah's Partners. I got to know Brandon in Maine. Uh, David Kotak invited us to his annual Cam Kotak. We were both there two years in a row. Brandon, it's been a pleasure getting to know you there, and uh, it's a really interesting perspective on on this new asset class for for a lot of you know my 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 world thanks jeremy appreciate it uh, you've been listening to behind the markets on sirius xm 132 and you can listen to us on our behind the markets podcast thanks to our producer danielle bruno for helping us get this show together have a great week everybody for more insight from business radio please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu